Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 175. And today in the show, we're joined by a living legend, Mr. Barry Wenzel. And Barry's diving deep with us today into his tactics and philosophies for bow hunting mature bucks. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we are joined by a man who's been widely requested by our listeners. We've, we've put out a number of different surveys over the years asking, you know, who do you want to hear from? And this man and his brother have been top of the charts for a long time. So this is a long time coming. Um, but this guy is, is honestly one of the most legendary figures in the whitetail hunting community. His brother and him have authored a number of very influential deer hunting books. They've produced videos such as Bow Hunting October Whitetails that for a lot of people have, have just completely changed the game when those videos came out. And this guy I'm talking of is Barry Wenzel. He's an avid traditional bow hunter living in the great state of Iowa these days and he is a self-proclaimed whitetail fanatic. So today this uh, I think this one is going to be a lot of fun. There's a lot to cover. Um, he has a lifetime of stories and experiences and lessons learned to share. And from what I've seen and gathered, just an absolute ton of big bucks that he can point to to back his tactics up. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm excited um, and I want to get right to the good stuff. But as we do on each episode, I'm going to ask you to bear with me a little bit for our little pregame show here. I feel like that's <laughs> kind of I feel like that's kind of a way to describe this, right, Dan? Our pregame show, um, right. I don't know. Just like, like just like game day is to the college football day. Exactly. We are our first ten minutes, fifteen minutes is just like a a warm up session, so we really don't blow it with the guest. Exactly. Okay, so if this was college game day, yep. of our four college game day hosts, who would you be and who would I be? <laughs> I'm definitely Lee Corso. I was just gonna say you're definitely Corso. <laughs> That's exactly what I was gonna say. And then you're the guy. You're not. You're not Herb Street. You're the other guy um, who just, runs the show. Basically. Chris Fowler. Just uh, yeah. You're, you're van- Fowler. Vanilla. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Fair enough. I keep the show on the tracks, and and that's you're, right. Someone's yeah. got to run it, and I'm the guy who just derails it, or or 
you start laughing when <laughs> you know like, every time like, you say something <laughs> right every time i say something you know it's going to be horrible it's going to come out wrong <laughs> yep that's about right so all right we've we've got our uh our character set here i i wanted to do a couple things here real quick before we get barry on um so fast <laughs> <laughs> what i'm trying to say corso is uh i want to hear about your weekend because I think there's more good news, right? And um, I also want to do what we talked about very briefly last week, which was give a real quick rundown on CWD again. Because um, I went to this event, I want to just you know lay out the facts again because there's so much misinformation out there. But uh, but but yeah, good news, right? You got to hunt again last weekend, am I right? Well, it's it's kind of a mixed bag, right? Good news, bad news type scenario. The Bad news is before I went out to my hunt, right, I dropped the kids off at my mom's. I went out. I was going to check some trail cameras real quick. They're really easy to access ones. And sure enough, three of the four that I checked had been stolen. Ugh. Uh, yep. So I, uh, you know, I, I drove around to some of the houses. I ended up knocking on some doors, spread the word about how they've been stolen, this and that. Um, and then, you know, there's almost a whole nother story that can go with behind there. I mean, I'm already in the process of communicating with other landowners who sent me pictures of someone they got busted on trail camera. I called the sheriff. I provided those pictures. Um, and they think they have a suspect now who is, who has been, you know, he's that kind of guy who goes out and steals trail cameras, basically, um, not a good rap, but, um, could be the guy, couldn't be the guy, you know, who knows? Um, there's an invest, there's an investigation that's going on right now, uh, which, you know, obviously when you realize your trail cameras are stolen, I don't, and I don't know about you, I'm the kind of guy who I'm not necessarily pissed that my cameras are stolen. I'm pissed that they didn't leave the SD card behind. Yeah. <laughs> that inf- that's information that you can't get back. Yep. I was, I had a couple of years ago, we had, um, at our Ohio property, I'm sure I told her this when it happened, but we had a situation where they didn't take the camera, but they just took the SD cards, and that made right. me more mad. I was more mad right. that they did that <laughs> than anything. Absolutely. <sighs> and I think I mentioned to you, so after that, all that crap was, it was time to go get in the woods. And if anybody who lived in this area of Iowa knew, it was like super windy, and this front was, you know, right when prime time hit, this front was going to be already passed, right? So the deer had been beaten up all day by wind and rain um, for like the past um, uh, probably 36 hours, you know, uh, just, you know, really bad weather, really high winds. And in the past, I've noticed that they tend to get up off their feet early if they've been exposed to that conditions in, in this perfect scenario. You're saying just and, after it passes? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, just after it passes. Yeah. Uh, if it correlates with an evening hunt, right? So I was in the tree at about four after I got set up and about, oh, I'd say about five, five thirty, is when it ended. But the deer were already on their feet, man. Um, I ran into six does. This was, and this was the first time I ever hunted this property, right? This was a fresh sit, run and gun. Um, I set up in between, um, a bedding area and a staging area. And, and there's a, a very small co- uh, travel corridor in between the two. And it was on a ridge that led in this, this whole flow of this property kind of led to 
a cornfield on one part and then a, uh, a cornfield on one part and then a, a clover field on this other part. Those were the food sources. Uh, of course, there was acorns all over. But I got in, I set up, and man, the deer just started moving. I mean, I saw like 10 does. I saw three bucks over 120, Jeez. around that one, 120, uh, 125 mark. One, two or two-year-olds, uh, a couple or one was like 125-ish. That guy, 125, 130, he was literally licking the tree that I set up in because I was, I, I, you know, that nose jammer stuff yeah, talk yeah. about, I sprayed, sprayed that on the base of my tree while I set up and he's sniffing it and licking it and it just crazy. Right. So he's, he's like this three-year-old and then a couple button bucks come by a couple four corns, you know, and then about 30 minutes left, I catch something out of the corner of my eye in this staging area, real thick staging area before they go out to the crop fields. And there must have been a buck bedded in that because I I see this big body kind of drop down behind a tree. I, I get my binos on. I can tell it's a big body, and I can tell the rack is okay, but it happened so fast I, I really couldn't tell. And this buck drops down into the creek. Um, must have got, you know, went to go get a drink of water or something. And sure enough, about, I'm going to say, 30 minutes before sundown, this buck pops back up out of the creek and starts making a scrape and rubbing these tree branches. And I get my binos on it. It's like this really, really nice four-year-old, probably about a 150, 155 class 10-pointer. Uh, uh, wow. his, le- his left G2 was split. And I'm just like, yes, you know, like <laughs> pumped up. And he's aggressive, right? His body language is showing, his body language is showing that he's, you know, marking some territory in the past, these types of things worked out. And so I grunted one time, just brap. He didn't hear me. And then another, I did it one more time, brap, you know, a real long, you know, longer grunt. And he stopped and he turned around and he just like his front end stayed the same, but his, the only thing that moved was his back two legs. And you know how they swing around, they kind of stop and look and stare mm-hmm. and he was he's just like he's looking at my area and then he kind of took these side steps and then he was in this thick stuff and i was he was out of my line of sight and then about two three minutes later i lost him and then he's he shows up and he's probably about 70 65 70 yards and it looks like he's walking right towards me and i'm like are you kidding me is this gonna work you know already and he's coming right at me and then I lose him again and I'm sitting there bow in hand. I'm ready, getting ready to, you know, like if he pops up strong back, it's getting darker, it's getting darker, it's getting darker and then nothing. So he must've scooted out uh, around me. I know he didn't catch my wind or my scent um, because that was blown in a completely different direction. So uh, at least I know that there's the, a, you know, a decent buck in this, on this new property. So I'm excited yeah. for that. That's an awesome set. Wow. Yeah. That is exciting to have that level of, of pump this early in the season, have a good encounter like that. Absolutely. And the best part about this whole thing is is a, a game plan worked based off of historic data. And when I mean historic data, like when the weather is doing this, you should be in a tree stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you put that into 
you, 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 uh, you put that together with your scouting of what you have and what wind direction and what your terrain offers you, knowing where you think the deer are bedding and where the food sources is, uh, the transition areas and all that stuff. And I put the game plan together. I thought it was going to work and it worked. And, um, I just have to, you know, as the season goes on, I start to learn this property a little bit more and hunt this property. I'm going to be able to do my tweaks, move my stand locations and hopefully, uh, intercept one. And I know that's not the only, I have a gut feeling that there's other big deer in this area. So, um, you know, just play my cards right and, uh, make my micro adjustments throughout the season. And hopefully I run into something or, or cross paths with, uh, you know, a target animal. It's a good start. Yeah, buddy. That's awesome. How about dude. You? Well, um, so I hunted opening night. We talked about that last week. Mm-hmm. And then after that Thursday, I headed up North to our Northern Michigan property and I hunted Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday up there. And between, so I've, I've had five hunts so far in Michigan and I've yet to see a single buck. Oh, so boy. that's, uh, you know, but they're on trail camera, right? Well, not <laughs> so in, in, on my Southern Michigan properties, there's one mature buck I've gotten on trail camera since the summer, one single mature buck, which is Holyfield. Yep. And then on our Northern Michigan property where we've been running cameras since the summer, since July 20th, when we put these cameras out up through now. There was one single picture of a buck. One time, one single picture, a year and a half fork horn, and that is it. What about does? Lots and lots of does. Right. That is it. So, um, Didn't you have, like, earlier in this, this summer some – or was that last year where last you year. had some pic- – okay, you had some pictures of some promised, you yeah. know, promising deer. Last yeah. year for the first time ever up there, we had two or three different bucks that would probably be mature bucks – that were mature bucks. That was the yeah. first time I've ever had that. This year, I, I had these really high hopes because we've been working on trying to improve it up there. We had some better food plots in this year. Uh, as far as I know, it's been untouched, you know, since the summer mostly, other than, you know, some other people that live nearby. Um, so I was thinking, oh, for sure, there's gonna, there's got to be a decent buck that's visiting this area on occasion at least, um, but nothing. So that was disappointing. And, you know, I hunted and same kind of thing, just saw does. I saw a handful of does every night, but um, nothing to get too excited about. Um, but got a little bit of a cold front hitting tomorrow uh so i'm gonna go dive into one of these pieces of public land i've been scouting down here and it's gonna be windy relatively windy and it's gonna be like a huge rainy day coming in that rain's gonna taper off by like four or five in the evening so i'm gonna sneak in there just at the end of that rain and get set up where i found one of these buck beds this spring when i was scouting yeah. And I think uh, there's a ridge with a bunch of acorns on it and this swampy, this little island out in a swamp where I found these beds. So my hypothesis is that there's a buck or bucks bedded out on this island and then this little strip of high ground that connects this island back to this ridge system where all these oaks are. And I got to believe cold front dropping like 13 degrees from the highs today to tomorrow and the rain and wind's going to allow me to get in there quietly, going to hang and hunt just downwind of that little strip this little like bridge almost that connects to the high ground and who knows it could be a good hunt i'll tell you what that weather is in iowa right now yeah uh so i mean it's raining outside right now the temperature is like 
I think yesterday the high was 68, 70 degrees. Now it's 46 oh, wow. degrees right now. Nice. So uh, it is cold and crappy outside. And if I could, man, I would be out in a tree stand. I don't know if that's going to be tonight, but tomorrow evening, if I could, unfortunately I can't, but uh, I would be in a tree stand tomorrow evening for sure. Oh man, that sounds awesome. I we don't have quite that cool of temperatures. Our our highs are still going to be like fifty nine, but that's that's a lot better than the seventy three it is today. So, yeah, I'm going to take it. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to give that a shot. And then otherwise, it's just hot temperatures from here on out. Other than that, so just going to take it easy on my good stuff and just keep plunking away at some of this public. Maybe shoot a doe somewhere, and yeah. uh, keep tabs on old Holyfield. Hopefully, so yeah, that's something I need to do is get a doe down yeah well shoot man we're supposed to talk cwd but we still i, I worry we're running out of time here because i want to get barry on we need um, to do we, next week we should do just me and you yeah if that's, should, if that's possible yeah we should do a, a just you and me podcast because there's lots to talk about you know we're that's breeze right. we're breezing through our own hunt related stuff pretty quickly here um so I'm gonna cwd pro- is important to talk about it is important so we're gonna do this is a two-week hype up to the cwd conversation right um so next week we will talk about um we'll cover some cwd related things we'll talk about some other stuff um but today we got barry wenzel and we should probably not beat around the bush right right we don't want to make that guy wait no we shouldn't do that so anything quick on your end dan before we get to it let's roll all right, let's do it. Let's pause for our Sitka story, and then we'll bring Barry on the line. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Sitka Ambassador Alex Templeton, who tells us about some exciting whitetail action from early November. I had been hunting consistently all season long in Missouri with no luck, and uh, at the end of October, I had the opportunity to go to Illinois, which came at a good time because the weather at home was really warm and the deer weren't moving at all. So after hunting a week in Illinois, coming home empty-handed, I was very determined to kill a deer with my bow before rifle season opened up in Missouri, which is on November 15th every year. Um, At this point, it was the beginning of November, um, and the weather can be hit or miss this time of the year as well. And this is when the rut is starting to kick off at the beginning of November. So I had pretty high hopes for good deer movement. And um, after a couple long days and nights sitting on an evening hunt on my favorite farm. I had a clean eight come by and he offered me a perfect broadside shot and I absolutely smoked him and I saw him go down about 60 yards away from my stand and I was super excited and pretty proud of myself. On Alex's hunt, she was wearing Sitka's Elevated 2 pattern in the women's line. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, Visit SitkaGear.com. All right. With us now on the line is Barry Wenzel. Thank you, Barry, for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. I always like to talk deer hunting. Yeah, ditto. That's uh, That kind of is what brings us all here together today. So, you know, I think that you are a guy within our little world of the whitetail hunting community that doesn't really need an introduction. Um, you've been one of the most influential people over the decades, but... I suppose for those maybe that, that don't, maybe for some people that are new to the hunting world or for whatever reason haven't heard about what you and your brother have been up to, could you just kind of tell us a little bit of your story, your background, you know, how you got to be where you are and how you got to be who you are today? What's what's the Barry Wenzel story? Oh, 
Okay. Um, where to start? Uh, actually, uh, um, and when I, I say our, I'm talking my brother Gene and myself are identical twins. Um, we've been doing this for our whole lives. Our dad was a, um avid hunter, but kind of a, a two-season hunter. I mean, he, he hunted with the bow in the bow season and gun with the gun season. But uh, we were the only two kids, so consequently... Gene and I, being twins, I would, we were born with hunting partners, so to speak. And if the truth were known, I think Dad probably put bows and arrows in our hands, thinking that we would get in less trouble than if we, you know, were running around with BB guns and twenty twos, which we ended up doing some of that too. <laughs> but uh, we really got into the the bows and arrows and just never put our toys away, type of thing. And being brothers, it was kind of a, um, whatever you want to say, it's a a team, but then it was also a little bit of competitive. I mean, it was, I mean, nothing serious, just, you know, (laughs) you know, my buck's bigger than your buck or whatever. And yeah, well, yours is typical, mine's non-typical, whatever, (laughs) that type of thing, you know. But uh, we were actually born in Pennsylvania and then uh, when my dad's job, he was transferred around quite a bit, and we ended up living in New York and Connecticut and Vermont. And then we went to school in uh, Indiana, and then we ended up moving to Montana. Both of us, Gene and I both, he lived in the Bitterroot Valley. I lived in the Flathead Valley up by Glacier National Park, mm-hmm. 150 miles apart. Um, we lived in Montana for... 30 almost 30 years and then which was great because and we moved there specifically for the the hunting and we had like where i lived we had 10 species of big game some of me had to draw permits for but we had 10 species of big game that i could bow hunt and this was you know back in the 70s and 80s and 90s and um as i said we hunted for decades it's almost embarrassing people you know think it's not fair when i tell them stuff like this but um it's just everything life is often in the timing and our timing was perfect meaning that we we hunted for decades and never even saw another bow hunter i mean that you know there was just and it was uh, a lot of uh national for u.s forest service land open hunting the valleys had private land but because people in fact they used to joke you know i mean we'd go up and ask permission knock on the door like anybody else and and you know um people actually admitted later that they gave us permission because they never thought we'd actually get anything you know <laughs> so but, it, but anyway we did that we lived in montana for 30 years what and years were said, that and Ten species, but we spent ninety percent of our time pursuing trophy whitetails, and you know because the Western Montana has good genetics on some giant whitetails. So even though we had, I mean, I used to go in the early season. Or the, the the Montana seasons used to open in September, and in September, you know, I I never deer hunted 
um, because the, when the season opened, a lot of the whitetails still were in velvet. But we'd, we'd go bear hunting, we'd go elk hunting, we'd go to antelope hunting, go muley hunting or whatever, and it, until October. And then Gene uh, and I both took our, quote, vacations. We'd, we would take a two-week vacation the 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 first two weeks in October, which was happens to be the last two weeks of the archery season. And then uh, you were also in Montana allowed to bow hunt during the gun season. So we, and we never gun hunted, you know, at all. So we, we would be able to continue through the late season. So basically we could bow hunt from September 1st until I think it was like January 10th or something like that, the late seasons. And uh, there were uh, a lot of archery only areas where we could get away from the gun hunters. And then, as I said, big country, uh, the logging industry where we, we could get away, get way back into big timber and not have any competition whatsoever type of, you know, so you're, and that's one of the big secrets being able to hunt non-disturbed animals. And, uh, um, as I said, we, we, uh, we did that for years and after the kids got all grown and gone, um, you know, I said, it was my idea first. I said to my brother, you know, I really, we were actually, we, we were coming back to Iowa. Um, uh, I, I put in for, what was it? Four or five years in a row. And you had to apply for non-resident tag. And I never drew. And I said, I'll fix you. I'll just move here. So anyway, I became a resident <laughs> in Iowa. And, you know, that was in 99. And, uh, in fact, my wife, Bless her heart. I mean, I, I got a good one. Um, when we moved to Iowa, she had never even been set foot in the state. You know, wow. I just said, hey, we're going. Um, you know, if you want to stay married, you're coming too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, if I said that today, I'd probably end up with a broken jaw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. But, yeah, you, you, you just have to overpower them, you know. <laughs> Damn, it sounds like but, you have got some learning. But anyway, we here. moved to Iowa in 99, and uh, in fact, that was we started off with kind of a tragedy because we sold our house in Montana. I rented two commercial storage units, put everything I own in, in two units, and then I rented the biggest truck U-Haul made, and I pulled a trailer behind it, and I took the first storage unit to Iowa, with intentions to going back and get the the second one, and before I got back to Montana to get the second one, the, the commercial storage unit burnt to the ground, and I lost half of everything I own, including you know a couple hundred trophies and a dozen custom bows oh. and irreplaceable stuff, you know, family heirlooms and so forth, you know. But uh, um, it, I cried. Oh, wow! Yeah. <laughs> you know, but. But anyway, it was, you know, again, just a freak accident type of thing, but uh, uh, kind of had to, so much from my trophy room, you know, yeah. <laughs> had to kind of start all over again, you know. But, uh, but anyway, um, so we've lived in Iowa now for, what, uh, whatever, 15, 16 years, and, you know, I love it. I just love the hardwoods. I love the the uh, the trophy, you know, whitetails and um, the terrain and the, uh, uh, I, I can't say I really enjoy the heat 
of the summer, but that's, you know, I, I can deal with that, you know, yeah. uh, um, as I it's said. that humidity. No, no big, no huge, yeah, no, no huge problem and stuff, yeah. you know. So I can, I, I'm, for the, the advantage I get with that, on that is I don't have to deal with snow, you know, 12 feet of snow in your driveway <laughs> in Montana. So I, yeah, you, uh, thing, you know. You, I was just gonna say you've uh, you've lived in the the only two states in the country that I would move to. The two states I I consider moving to are Iowa and Montana, and it oh, really? sounds like you've uh, you've been I living that dream. I would think twice about Montana. I, I hope you know. If, no offense to some of the, the listeners, but uh, as I said earlier, everything's in the timing. And my daughter still lives out there, and we go out you know every year and so forth. But it has changed so drastically. I mean, guys will say, hey, you lived in Montana. Can you give me some pointers on, you know, where can I f- have a decent chance of seeing some, getting some elk or whatever? And, you know, I, I have to be honest with them. It's changed so drastically. For for example, the wolves. When we lived there, um, I mean, I, I, I can't remember what year it was. Back in the 80s, I, you know, I ran into some wolves and, you know, nobody even knew they were around, and and now they're everywhere. And areas that we used to walk, pack back in for elk, that were you know very. Re- I mean, this one, our favorite area, it was like, I can't remember, twenty six or twenty seven miles from the from the the road type of thing. And now there's hardly any elk in there. For I, I haven't been in myself, but I've, I've talked to guys who have, and there's there's hardly any elk in there because forth uh you know eastern montana we used to go in the eastern montana you know is quote our vacation i was talking about the uh, the first two weeks in october and we would make a circuit and we would basically hunt the major river drainages uh the missouri the yellowstone the milk river etc for for example the milk river i mean it's all over television everybody talks about the milk we gene and i i say quote discovered the Milk River, we hunted the Milk River for decades and never even saw or heard of another bow hunter. And we used the analogy, you could go in western Montana in the big timber and there would be, I would I would hunt all day long at home, around home, and I had seeing five deer a day, all right? And of those five deer, two or three of them would be bucks. It was very close to a 50-50 buck doe ratio. But of those two or three bucks, one of those bucks would be fully mature. So you would, but you would only see, there were some long days when you're hunting light to dark and you only see five deer. Whereas in eastern Montana, we would do the same thing, and you would see between three and five hundred deer a day in the <laughs> woods while you're hunting. And I use the, the analogy: of, it's like if you take a lake and take all the water out except one little strip of water down the middle, you know where the fish are going to be. And that's the way the the prairie in eastern Montana was. It it concentrated because of the moisture. You know, the river bottom, that's where the cover was, and that's also where the irrigation was, where the farmers had fields, and they would plant their crops and irrigate the crops and so forth. So because of the the, uh, the cover and the security, the food, you there? Yes, still there. Okay. Uh, Anyway, it concentrated the deer in one area, and, you know, as I said, you would have a lot better you know, hunting and so forth. So I, I 
I got on a tangent. What was the original question? Well, <laughs> I was just talking about uh, how I wanted to move to Montana, and you were saying how it's not like it used to be. Oh, yeah, to be. right. Well, that's what I was going to say. Now, oh, yeah, thanks for bringing that back up, because those areas that we used to hunt, EHD hit, and this was, this was back, yeah, it, it hit a little bit. We didn't even know what, nobody knew what it was back in the 70s and 80s and so forth. And then in the 90s, it hit big time in eastern Montana. And um, I remember one year, and, and don't quote me, I don't remember what year it was, but one year we had, and I can't even remember the order, but we had, it was the worst winter snow in a hundred years and so we lost like half of the of the deer herd and then the next summer it was drought type of thing and we lost almost well 60 percent so we we lost you know of of though of 60 percent of the 50 percent that was left over from the year before type of thing so it pretty much wiped out and at that time the, the deer biologists, they didn't even know, I mean, or the ones I talked to didn't know what was going on. I mean, uh, you know, we would go in and talk to them, and they're asking us questions, you know, and they they were, um, and I, I, I got to watch my words here, they were, they were just naive. They didn't know. Uh, they hadn't ever dealt with it before. And I remember them telling me, that it, that EHD was or similar to blue tongue, and it was non-sex specific, meaning it would kill just as many does as bucks. It was non-age specific; it would kill just as many fawns as trophy bucks, etc. But Gene and I, the the farms we used to hunt that fall, we go over there, and he and I found seventy seven zero seventy dead bucks that were, um, and I'm, I think that we found one two-by-one, you know, a spike on a fork on one side, and one little three-by-three three out of 70, you know, 68 of them were four-by-four, eight-pointers or better. And I'm wow. talking three-and-a-half, four-and-a-half, five-and-a-half-year-olds, you know. So, I mean, when you find, and two, we found two does. We, we found a spike or whatever, a spike in a three-by-three three and two does, and the rest were trophy, quote, mature bucks type of thing and that's not 50 50 you know so as i said it they they it wiped out the entire area entire age structures and uh you can at the end of that when that happened you could drive around i mean fields and you were allowed to spotlight if you didn't have a weapon in the car and stuff and we used to it, to call fishing game we we got along great with them we'd call them and say hey, we're gonna you know check out an area so-and-so you know it's a few anybody reports this it's just us or whatever anyway my point is that you could spot a field one year and it would be 250 deer standing in it you know at night with the spotlight and then the, the year after you go back to the same field and there's a doe and a fawn you know, and how come they didn't die, you know, type of thing. I mean, it just totally wiped them out. So consequently, we moved on. And it would, it come, they started to come back, and it would just start to come back, and it it would hit again. And, you know, I said to Gene, hey, we're getting too old waiting for these fawns to, to grow up to be five and a half years old, only to get wiped out when they're four and a half or whatever, you know. So yeah. that was the... Uh, the opportunity to to move to Iowa, and that's what we did. And uh, as I said, I 
never looked back type of thing, you know, oh. but it's so different now. Um, if you go to Montana, you need to really research. And I, I don't want to paint a negative picture because there's probably still good areas. Um, and there's certain areas that the, the, the disease problems would hit, you know, terribly and other areas that had passed right over type of thing. So it, it's kind of interesting, but all I'm saying is, um, um, if you do hunt Montana, you need to really research the area, be it, you know, elk, antelope, whitetails, or whatever, because it's not the same as it was, you know, necessarily when we were there and it was yeah. prime. So I don't want to paint a, an unrealistic picture <laughs> no, either good, way though. for anybody. It's, you know, but, uh, it was great while it lasted. It's interesting. Anyway. I've uh, I've mm-hmm. hunted Montana for whitetails the last two years, um, once mm-hmm. in central Montana, once in eastern Montana, and uh, I I would love to have seen what it was like back in the day if it was that much better because sure. even today it seems remarkable to me as a Michigan guy, um, but mm-hmm. uh, but man, it must have been something mm-hmm. pretty special um, before these issues. So but it now, was. We go ahead. I was going to say, but now that you're in Iowa. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of want to shift over to what you're doing these days. And one mm-hmm. of the things that I've read from you, you seem to talk about a lot is how you're hunting these deer using terrain, using an understanding of how deer use terrain, um, and mm-hmm. different, different ways that terrain funnels deer, moves deer and allows you to hunt. And I kind of want to use that as a starting point for us to, to dig into like the tactic sure. side of things. Um, because you know, whether it be Montana or Iowa or wherever else you've hunted, it seems like you've been able to get on big mature deer and you're doing it hunting with traditional archer equipment, which requires you be very close to these deer. So you've been able to really fine tune your ability to do that. Mm-hmm. So I guess I kind of want to set you off in that direction. Sure. T- tell that's, me about how fine. you used to and I, I love talking about that because I think that is one of the most important things that we need to worry about in the future. Um, frankly, the, the young hunters today are being taught and it, it's nobody's real, really not any one, you know, idea or thought, but it's, it's human kind of human nature, um, that the young kids, that they want more and bigger and faster type of thing. And as I said, they all want to be a, a Michael Jordan, but I don't want to have to practice shooting hoops. You know, I mean, they, they all want to, uh, be a successful big game hunter, but trophy hunter, so to speak, but they don't want to have to, to, you know, learn or, you know, and they've been taught the, the TV programs. I hate, but they're, they're kind of teaching the youth of today that the, the, the way to hunt whitetails is to sit over a food plot in a shooting house and they'll sit there and play their Game Boy or whatever their, you know, their iPod or what, pad or whatever it is. And, and, uh, you know, wake me up if a big one comes about dad, you know, that time <laughs> yeah. and I'll blast them, you know, and there's more. no woodsmanship where the kids are learning, um, the, the easy way and not learning the woodsmanship skills, which is really disappointing to me because to me, that's what makes it so rewarding. That's where the fun is, is to to go out and actually put the pieces of the puzzle together. And, and I hate to say earn the trophy, but be able to, to uh, 
predict what's going to happen and not just a deer walking into a food plot type of thing, but predict when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, you know, it, it, you know, et cetera, and then put all these pieces together. And frankly, there's no better way than boots on the ground. I mean, you can listen to the, I mean, no offense, you can listen to the iPods, you can watch the videos, you can read the books and watch the TVs and, and so forth, but there's so many things that you actually have to get out and put boots on the ground. I mean, example, aerial photos. You can look at an aerial photo, and that's all well and good, and you can gain, you can benefit from that, but you can't, there's a lot of stuff that you cannot see in aerial photos. The kinds of trees, the light intensity, um, the understory, it's thicker here. You know, I, I, I have run these boot camps for 15 years now and that's where they shine they, these guys you know will come in and it's a three-day session and i they come in and i'll uh, the first day is basically classroom stuff i'll spill my guts and then the next two days i take them out into the timber and i show them my own personal stands and explain why they're there how they're there when i hunt them how i hunt them etc and as I said, there's so many things, gray areas, that are hard to understand via watching TV or reading or just listening. Whereas I can take, like, for, for example, edge. Everybody will say, you know, oh, yeah, I know what edge is. That's where the field meets the, the timber type of thing. Well, then I'll take them in the timber and say, okay, stand right here and notice that the understory is thicker here than it is right there. There, That's an edge. Notice that the canopy is thicker here than it is over here. That's an edge. That is why the understory is thicker here than it is over here, because the canopy is allowing sunlight to come in and generate the understory and make it thicker. And you will have deer, depending on the the situation and in other words uh different i'll i'll point out examples okay for for example there's one one place i'll take the guys and i'll say okay see it's a fence that run but a fence internally that runs east west all right the south side of the fence is trees thicker understory etc the the north side of the fence is pasture but a few trees in it and so forth, all right? And I'll say to those guys, you know, you can sit this spot. The deer are coming from the food source to the west. They're going to the bedding area to the east, all right? In early season, be, before, like in the beginning, of our season normally opens October 1st, okay? For the first couple weeks of October, deer that are going from the food source to the bedding area will walk out in the pasture. And this is back in. It's not next to any roads or anything. But they'll walk out in the pasture, and you'll think to yourself, why are they doing that when they don't have the density? And then you think more about it, and you think, okay, the reason being is it's 
predominant south, southwesterly wind, they can walk in that pasture and not have any disturbance, etc., instead of bowling their way through thick understory of briars, you know, stickers, it's got dew on it, it's wet, you know, they got to bowl their way through it type of thing versus an easy walk through the pasture. But as soon as the the, the first frosts hit, then the leaves and the understory, thick understory will die, the frost kills the leaves, they'll drop, and then it will actually be easier. Then they will shift, the deer movement will shift into the, the thicker, what was thick understory is still thicker than the pasture, but it won't be, they don't have to worry about bulling their way through it, it the, the leaves have fallen, plus it, they still have the wind to their advantage so they can smell anything that's upwind of them and they can see anything that's downwind of them and consequently it's, you know, safe secure travel so that you you have to set up your stand accordingly to, to, depending on the certain time of the year i do stuff like that all the time and i as i said i guess i should say it's just it's kind of a a saturation thing uh, in other words uh, if somebody said to me you know um you know how do you base your your hunting technique you know what would you suggest these younger guys do uh, one of the things that i would highly recommend is for them to slow down um, meaning slow down and think about what you're seeing um, i used to brag i mean i'm talking you know 30 40 years ago i used to brag about going into an area and i could run through it and put it all together you know and it was only i was almost cocky about it okay but in my older, you know, age, um, I have I used to, I used to say I'd rather go into an area and walk at one time for six hours, you know, rather than go back and disturb it six times an hour each. All right, and now I'm the completely 180, the other way around. I would much rather go back multiple times. Number one, because a, a, a comparison type of thing, you can compare the the thermal, the wind direction on, uh, uh, you know, day one versus day three or four times, the fifth time you walk it and so forth. You can, the light intent, the, the things that, that you can, uh, you can learn, the, you know, the secret is timing. In other words, you don't, you don't do this close to the season i mean i i get a charge out of all these the you know i hate to say it the the average guy they'll wait till the uh, the, few, the last couple weeks before the, the bow season opens and okay man now i gotta i gotta go out there and scout you know and i hate to tell you but you know they're they're way months too late i do my scouting right after the the previous season when there's no vegetation you know before it doesn't matter again if there's snow cover on the ground it's just easier walking when it's you know no lee i mean no uh understory but you know no snow and ice you have to worry about but my point is i do the majority of my scouting you know right after season being prepared and comparing i'm out there all the time, all the time, you know, and I, I use the analogy. It's like 
the and I'm not a baseball fan or anything, but it's like the baseball players going to spring training. You know, they don't wait to the opening first game of the season to start warming up. They go to Florida or Arizona or whatever, you know, spring training, and they're 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 getting they're preparing and they're getting ready, practicing for the opening, and, and it, it takes months. You know, not a week or so type of thing. So as I said, it's, it's, uh, and that's the fun of it, being able to predict what's going to happen. But if I had to pinpoint my success, one of the, the biggest things is number one, hunting undisturbed deer. And number two is putting in the time learning the terrain because there's terrain features and structures Knowing how a deer, uh, his whole life, rotates around his sense of smell. Guys do not realize or appreciate how much they depend, an animal, the deer, depend on their sense of smell and their everyday moving, you know, everyday movements and stuff. Um, let me say this. I use an example, all right, perfect example of say you got a ridge a hardwood ridge running east west okay on the east end of it there's a food source a, a, a cornfield alfalfa field whatever beans or whatever okay on the west end of that ridge it's all hardwoods and it drops down to a creek bottom right there's usually where it drops down to the, you know the erosion and stuff there'll be little shelves and so forth all right the predominant wind nor in our area comes from the south or southwest all right so the deer feed in the field all right and then they they walk back in you know across the the, the ridges to their bedding area and they and we'll get into that in a minute so we're in they bed there for security reasons all right through the years and i'm talking 50 years ago all right. When they logged those hardwoods, you'll see the remnants of an old skid road. All right, and that'll be on the top of that ridge. All right. The reason that's on top of that ridge—that's human activity, human thinking—because it's easier to take the logs out when they logged it 50 years ago with a skid road on the top rather than side hill. But say the top of that ridge is only. I don't know, 50 yards wide, all right, that old grown-over skid road will still be, you'll be able to see it, and you'll see tracks on it. There's all kinds of tracks because the deer are walking up and down that skid road. Most of your hunters will see those tracks and say, oh, man, this is where I want to be. So they'll get on, say, say, as I said, the example, it's going east-west. They'll get on the north side of that skid road, put their stand up, all right, covering the skid road. What they don't realize is the tracks that they're seeing on that skid road are nocturnal. Yes, there's tracks on it, but most of the tracks on are, are made at you know before and after dark. I mean, after before light and after dark type of thing. All right. So, you you if you look around and think of the logistics of why they do what they do. All right. If the the wind is coming from the south, and your east west ridge is you know is the movement pattern so the deer are going from the the food source to the east to the bedding to the to the west all right the deer will especially 
after lights. Once in a while, you'll get one walking that road. But how many times you've heard the guy, he'll put his tree stand up there, and, oh, man, he came in right behind me, you know, well, duh. I mean, the reason he came in right behind that's where he was supposed to come in. I mean, according to the deer. You're, you're thinking like a deer now, not like a human. So what you do, again, you look around, and you'll see a slight secondary trail over the crest of the hill on the north side of the east-west facing, you know, a running ridge. Okay, just over the crest, usually it's just down far enough where they're not skylined, and it's still, it will run the east-west over the crest of the ridge. That is where you set up for type of thing. In other words, and what happens, and you think of the reasoning behind it, they're living everyday security because of their sense of smell. So the deer will, they'll get up in the afternoon, they'll get up from their beds and they'll slowly work their way out from west to east over the, the lip of that, of that ridge. So now you, they got a southerly uh, predominant wind. So they can smell anything upwind of them, and they can see anything downwind of them. So they can see where they can't smell and smell where they can't see. And they'll slowly work their way out, and then they'll go out into the field after dark and be out there. So you're set up to to ambush them where they're supposed to be, not where you think they'll be mm-hmm. type of thing. And anyway, and the exact reverse is true in the morning. In the morning, depending if they're running late or, you know, the time of day and stuff, there's all kinds of things like that that you can learn by going out and thinking about, looking at what you're seeing and thinking about it rather than, you know, just, you know, I mean, a lot of that stuff is is nothing but logic type of thing. Um, it's like, you know, scrapes, you know, um, the bucks will tend to, uh, they'll sit like in the morning, guys will sit scraped. And unless, then we won't even get into that, but I mean, a, a good a primary rutting breeding scrape type of thing. All right. You'll find if you study them long enough, you'll find that, that, uh, in the morning bucks tend to scent check the scrapes more in the morning, whereas in the afternoon, they'll actually visit them. And you think of the, the reasoning behind it. In other words, in the morning, uh, deer are being, uh, they might be bedded. That depends on if it's lighter, you know, before, say it's, it's light, say it's eight o'clock, you know, in the morning type of thing. And that deer wants to check that scrape for, he, he might check, uh, for, uh, there might be a doe, a receptive doe that's bedded right there. It might be another buck, a dominant subordinate type of thing that's bedded right there. So he'll come down, he'll come in downwind and scent check it and stuff and go from there, all right? Whereas in the evening, they know that it's evening, and man, all night long while we're sleeping, they're running, tracing, grunting, and breeding, and every, you know they're carrying a circus going on out there. So they'll go ahead right in to the scrape and actually fresh out anything around here. No, okay, we'll freshen it up, pee here, and then they'll move on and so forth. A lot of that stuff is absolutely... Nothing, as I said, if you think about it, that's the reasoning behind it. uh, We were talking, you asked about the terrain. Mm -hmm. Um, You you need to realize, I I use this as an analogy, same thing. Okay, say say you've got a a ridge, 
okay, with a, a food source at the bottom of the ridge, all right, um, just through whatever, you know, science or whenever hot air rises, all right, all right, because the, the ridge is higher than the food source, during the day, the air currents, and I'm talking thermal currents, as the, the sun hits the air, they'll flow up the mountain type of thing. So the deer will bed at the top of the mountain so that they have the, the thermals coming up the mountain in into their their faces. They can smell anything that's that's coming up the mountain. All right. The same say the the ridge is running east west. All right, and you've got a, a a predominant wind direction coming from the south. They there's a certain now we're talking wind direction, not thermals. You'll find that the wind direction from the south will be on over top of that ridge, and it'll meet the thermal currents coming up on the north face of that ridge. And there's a, er, there's an area there that's just over the crest of the ridge where they're getting both. The, the anything, any smells, any sense, disturbances on the upwind side, uh, you know, they're going to smell coming in. And anything, any disturbances on or whatever on the downwind side, they're going to come and smell from the thermals. So that's where they're bedding for security purposes. Then in the afternoon, all right, while the sun is still up, the the majority of the herd, you know, the immature bucks, the does, the fawns, will get up from their beds and they'll start to work their way down the mountain to the food source with the thermals in their face type of thing. The big mature trophy buck, he remains bedded at the top of the mountain, okay, until... The sun goes down, dethermalization, the, the thermals start to cool, then they start to run down the mountain. And you think of the logistics behind it, it makes perfect sense. Now, he's going down the mountain, he's got the wind and the thermals at his back, so he can smell anything behind him. He's got the, the rest of the deer herd down in the field acting as decoys, so if you bust a, a I mean, if a button buck, busts you down there you don't even know the big guy was around type of thing and that's the exact reason he's the last one to enter the field you know just before dark or after dark and that's the, ex the exact opposite is true in the morning before it's even light he'll start to work his way back up the bedding to the bedding area with the, the down the, the cool air thermals coming down in his face type of thing and he's got the rest of the, the herd over his back, watching the watching the back door, so to speak. So it's a predicted normal pattern that guys need. If they're aware of that, they can look for that type of thing. It's like there's so much stuff out there that you read about, and and I hate to say a lot of the outdoor writers, you know, they're just, they'll make stuff up. And I, I don't think they really understand what they're saying half of the time anyway. You know, I mean, and again, no offense. Some of them do. But my, my point is, for example, <laughs> like uh, scrapes. All right. When a, when a, the function of a scrape, you ask, you know, the average guy and, you know, oh, that's where that's the calling card where the dough, the buck meets the dough and stuff. Yes, it is. But there's a lot more going on at a scrape than people realize all right all right when a, when again if a, if a deer 
if, if a buck makes a scrape, okay, he urinates, and a lot of times the doe is the one who picks, you know, she'll urinate in that spot, and it's usually in a spot that number one is secure and number two where, you know, uh, it's, there's a lot of deer travel and so forth. Okay, so say the buck paws the ground, you know, turns up turns up the the the, the dirt, and then he brings his tar- his tarsal glands, his you know, uh, hock glands together. He'll pee over the 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 hock glands. Two things happen at that time when he urinates in that scrape. Okay, the the urine itself will be deposited and the the each deer within the the deer herd the social structure of the deer herd every deer has its own personal distinct aroma in other words that's and you can use the analogy that's that's why uh, you know when they separate the cows and the calves and you know that that's how the cow find you know and the calf to come back together through the the odor of the individual animals all right so his personal scent is left in that scrape the second thing is that the the aroma deposits his health meaning uh, a doe and this gets heavy but a doe can smell that urine and she knows Again, if that's a healthy animal or not. If it's a healthy animal, he has she's she's smelling the the smell of fat molecules. If it's an unhealthy animal, she's smelling the aroma of protein type of thing. So she can smell that scrape, and she she instantly knows. Oh, that's Bob, the uh, the the eight pointer. All right, and he's he's healthy. Whereas this one, oh, that's Jim, the 10-pointer, and, you know, he's got some problems, even though he's got more points on his head. You know, they the doe will pick her sire. She knows which one. She can, you know, that yes, the bucks will all try to harass her and stuff, but as long as she keeps moving, you know, she can, you know, prevent being, you know, bred type of thing. So she... She wants to be bred by the animal that, you know, she prefers, which is the healthiest one, you know, has the best genetics, you know, just for perpetuation of the, of the species and stuff, you know. Things like snorting. I, I get carried away here sometimes. I think, uh, I think this is a good place to take a quick break and uh, hopefully you have a notepad because obviously we've been covering a lot here, a lot of information, a lot to take in, but good stuff, very good stuff. But uh, we're going to take a quick break here for a word from our friends at Whitetail Properties, and then we'll get right back to it. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Brandon Swartzlander, a land specialist out of Illinois. And Brandon is going to be telling us about the importance of getting the next generation involved with land management. You know, that's a great question. I think uh, me personally... I think getting kids involved early, uh, and, and maybe not just kids, but but anyone who hasn't experienced the outdoors or or land. I mean, it's it's just such an awesome event. I, I honestly got to have to pinch myself sometimes because I get to do this for a living. But you know, when when I have girls, and some of them hunt, some of them don't hunt, but just just being out, we all shoot, we all shoot bows. Um, and we all experience the outdoors. We shed hunt. We do all those things together. I just think that you can take away so much more by spending time with whether it's your family or friends or whomever in in the woods or or you know on a piece of land. It's it's 
it's so much better than than you know having a phone stuck in your face or a laptop or whatever uh i just think it gives us an opportunity to go back to to what we were raised on and and i think you know maybe maybe that's missing to some degree and and in society today, but I, I just think when when you introduce things at an early age, I think I was probably five when I started um, in the outdoors with my dad. Um, but it makes you want to be better, and it takes you uh, away from you know things that that can be a negative influence. I just I feel like it's it's such a positive thing for especially with family. I mean, when you can can do those things with your kids and and your wife or whatever. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Brandon currently has listed for sale. Visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Swartzlander. That's S-W-A-R-T-Z-L-A-N-D-E-R. And now let's get right back into it. Things like snorting. When a deer snorts, all right, guys will say, you know, oh, he blew me type of thing. Well, maybe and maybe not. What I'm saying, the reason a deer snorts is to blow the mucus out of their if they if they snort they might have smelled you but they might it might have been something that they'll accept and it's not really that you know much of a, a danger to them so they'll blow they'll snort they'll blow the mucus out of the nasal cavity and stuff at the same time they moisten the orifice meaning that the the the, the uh, opening of the nose and nasal cavity will become moist and a moist orifice will pick up scent molecules in the air. You've seen bucks where you see them, they're licking their noses all the time and their, their tongue's flicking all over, licking their nose. Mm-hmm. That's what they're doing. They're moistening the orifice to try to pick, pick, be able to pick up the scent molecules a little bit better. But okay. as I said, I get kind of carried away sometimes, but the, the so- bottom line is you need to put boots on the ground, slowly walk around and decide why they're doing certain things and line everything up um, that you're still there, right? Oh, yeah. We are here. Okay. Okay. You want to find out if yeah. I didn't want to find out I've been talking to myself for the last 15 minutes. Okay. Anyway, you've got anyway, a, you've got a wealth of information. This is this is terrific. Oh, great. Well, and like I said, you need to look, The guy, everybody out there needs to look at pieces of the puzzle. In other words, meaning, um, okay, for example, um, the, I, I shot two big bucks last year. Okay, the second one, all right, the reason that stand is where it is, is because there is, let's say, one, two, actually three different, uh, fence corners come together, well, kind of like a Y type of thing, all right? But, oh, wait a minute, one, two, yeah, three, all right, actually four. But anyway, my point is, on the the north side of the fence, and this is where the, the boot camp, camp classes shine, because I, uh, I can point this stuff out. See how that angles up like that? You know, yeah. whereas we can't see that on the phone type of thing. But, you know, guys are able... I use the, the analogy, it's kind of like, you know, watching a war movie versus actually being in war. There's a big difference and stuff. So me telling you about it versus, you know, trying to put it together in your mind might right. might not work. But anyway, my point is um, you need to, to scout your areas out 
And most guys do not look far enough. In other words, um, in this particular scenario, all right, over the horizon, it's not even in view. It's over the crest of the horizon to the north of me. There's a stock pond, I mean, a, a farm pond, all right? And the farmer has it circled or, or fenced. He has a, a barbed wire fence around it. But the angles of that fence, the, the uh, um, uh, cultivated crops are past the the stock tank and the angles that the 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 fences that cut uh, you know that uh, run around the perimeter of that dictate the movement with a little like little strips of trees that are that are angled a certain direction all right so my stand is positioned so my scent blows over top of the stock pond where they're not going to bust me, you know, unless they're walking on water type of thing, <laughs> but they'll, they'll follow from the, the, the food source, the angle of the fence, they'll follow it down. They'll hit a tree line and the fence turns. They'll follow parallel to that fence and they'll walk right down and they'll cross the, the, the fence that I'm sitting next to, um, it with, with, an almost wrong wind, meaning they think they're walking into a headwind because they're going from basically north to south with a southwest wind, and they feel perfectly safe doing that because they can think they can smell everything. But I'm it just and, and again they're going from north to south, and my wind is going southwest to northeast, so it's almost wrong type of thing, but they can't bust me because my scent's going over top of the water type of thing. So it's one of those, you, you need to, to reason, hey, that's where you need to be type of thing in order to, to, you know, and most guys, they don't, they won't walk up over the crest like, oh man, here, here's, a, here's a stock pond here. You know, I mean, right. you know, and you put it put it all together, and you know, old hedgerows, uh, old dilapidated fences. You know, the understory thicker here than there. Um, the bedding area is up there, and versus, you know, um, it, it, everything, all pieces of the puzzle that all come together and all make perfect common sense. Yeah. As I said, when it a guy is. realizes. These deer are actually, uh, you know, surviving. I mean, the 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 uh, their sense of smell is what basically is keeping them alive, et cetera. And and they how they use the terrain and the air currents to travel, you know, from certain, you know, one spot to the next is absolutely you know, the, the, the secret, in other words, the, where you, uh, you can ambush them. And then so, you have to take into consideration like the entrance exit, meaning, so Barry, um, before if we, you, before, yeah, before we, before we get to entrance and exit routes, cause I definitely want to cover that, but I just want to, uh, double check on a few things here before we, we lose some folks on something yeah. I just talked about there. Um, that being, you know, how two things, number one, if I can, um, if I can kind of sum up a few things you said there to make sure I've got this right. Number sure. one, it's right. really important to be looking at our hunting properties from a big picture perspective and from a 
kind of micro pattern. So from a big picture perspective, right. understand how all these different large terrain features, ponds, ridges, mm-hmm. fence rows, how all these different things might move deer, how funnel deer through a property. But at the same time, you got to also get on the ground and look at the micro differences. So a slight edge or slight difference in cover within a piece of property or mm-hmm. a slight shelf on the side of a ridge. So I think a big takeaway, I think, for people listening, they need to remember, scout and learn your property from the big picture and from the small picture. And then I think uh, That's you- perfect. And, and, and let me just interject this and I'll let you pick it up. It, I use the analogy, I'm big on analogies. I use the analogy of, a, of a, a doctor looking at an x-ray versus a layman looking at an x-ray. You can put an x-ray up on a screen of a, a skeleton and to the, to the average guy say, you know, okay, here the, the average guy will say, there, there's the head, there's the neck, there's the spine, there's the arms, and you know, all this stuff. Whereas you put that same x-ray up and have a doctor look at it, he's looking for minute minute changes, little anomalies, the things that, you know, fractures and, and, uh, you know, calcium deposits and disrelationships, little minute things. So that's what we as deer hunters are, are trophy deer hunters need to do. You need to, to, when you say micro, that's a good term. You need to really, really inspect, stop, slow down and think about what you're seeing. And by all means, when you discover something, share it with your buddies, you know, and the kids and stuff. So they can go out and then they'll look at these patterns that you have just pointed out and give you even more input. Then where it's, again, it's not like, you know, I mean, again, it's like a, it's like a team type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I love to share this stuff. You know, I love to get the feedback after I'll teach somebody. You know, and I'll learn from it type of thing. So anyway, yeah. go ahead. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And um, to to one of your points, you talked about a little bit earlier. You know, you mentioned as we were talking through structure and how deer use terrain. Something you kept on alluding to was not only the terrain that funnels deer movement, but then how they're using the wind in relation to that terrain. Mm-hmm. So you talked about how deer are going to be traveling just off the crest of a ridge with the wind blowing mm-hmm. to them in a certain way, or how bucks will bed so they can see down the hill, can smell behind them, um, or how they'll use wind to check scrapes in the morning while they might actually visit that scrape in the evening. So you, you've mentioned a number of different examples where you're thinking about how mm-hmm. deer are using the wind. But I also know that you also are really thinking about wind from a hunting perspective, um, especially when you're choosing how to hunt these different terrain features, which funnel deer. And I've read a little bit about how you've used some things in the off-season, like smoke bombs or something, to, to track yeah. all these different wind patterns. Can you go into detail for us on how you are thinking about wind when actually choosing a stand location, how you check the wind in those places, how do you know and figure out, A, how wind Certainly. acts in an area, and how the sure. B, deer use it? Certain, I mean, same thing. You need to think about this. When when people talk about wind currents, all right, everybody assumes or thinks that the wind. Say you're up in a ladder, you know, uh, 15 feet, and you you check the wind, and they 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 see the the air current go out, and then gravity will start to pull it down to earth. Well, that is a lot of the times. But a lot of the times it's the other way around where it'll go out and you'll have updrafts. You have to think of air as like invisible water. And when I'm in the stand, all right, 
when I, I use, what I use is that uh, um, polyester yarn. Yeah, I buy it at fly fishing tackle shops. You can get it, you know, any of the major sporting goods stores. And they, it's like, uh, it looks like cotton candy, but it comes in fluorescent and chartreuse and any kind of bright color, you know. But anyway, and you, it's like, I don't remember. You get like five feet of it for two or three bucks or something, right? Anyway, I cut it in lengths about, you know, six inches, and I keep it in my right front, I'm left, I mean, I'm right-handed, so my bow's in my left hand, but I'll keep it in up in the upper corner, just inside my front right pocket. I tuck it in there, all right, when I get in the stand, I'll pull it out, and I'll take, just, you don't need very much, just a few filaments, and I'll pinch off some fiber polyester fiber filaments and I'll stick them to my shirt on my left sleeve so I might have eight or ten or twelve little pieces of of yarn of this polyester yarn stuck to my sleeve so that when I'm sitting there in the stand I mean all the time I mean almost constantly you know and again now obviously be careful when you're moving around you know make sure you can but I'm constantly checking the wind. I'll I'll reach over to my sleeve and I'll pull a couple filaments off and I'll watch it and it'll drift out and oh it's going up beautiful or oh it's going oh it's going down okay you know but it's going right towards that one dead snag over there so I know the exact angle etc the velocity and exactly the way it's going and so forth all right that is very very important so that you can know because you might have a, a buck a shooter come in from a different direct say or maybe one following a doe in other words and you you have to wait okay it's quartering to me quartering to me you know and okay right before the, the doe that he's following hits that your scent travel the, the air current you know okay the air is going right towards that snag right before she hits that now is when you shoot them type of thing when he's mm-hmm. you know not you know uh, not letting them get quartering away or she'll bust you and blow up the whole scene type of thing but anyway i you you can go to <clears throat> i just in fact i just bought a dozen of them was a, a couple weeks ago i was at a, a, a gun show in in iowa and you know they had some firework you can get them in any fire or any uh any place that sells fireworks and so forth, you know, but uh, they they come little colored ones, and you know the you know whatever blue or yellow or red or whatever. But I'll take you know the the smoke bombs, and I'll put, this is in the off season, by the way. I'll take you know the smoke bombs, and I'll lay them on the grill of the platform, and I'll light them, and then they'll and you. And I, I always mention this because I've just some of them are really cheap, and they, they, you know, they blow out smoke for five seconds and they're done. Whereas some of the good ones will blow out a volume of smoke for, you know, whatever twenty, thirty seconds type of thing. Um, by the way, I think I've been told you can get them uh, in the Granger catalog, Industrial Supply too. Those uh, smoke you know, detector type of smoke where they're white smoke and, but they'll, they'll go off for, for, for a long period of time. And you'll be able to visually see, 
you know, how the smoke is, is going around certain trees. If the, for example, if you're in hardwoods and it's a single cedar or juniper, whatever right there, and it hits, it's going towards that tree. Does it go around it? Does it go up over it? Does it go through it? That, that type of thing. Or you can see, um, where there's hill, like, especially in valleys in a, you know, I remember one scenario there. I was in a, a valley, and I thought it was wide enough. It was probably, I mean, the bottom of the two ridges, it was, it was over 100 yards wide at the bottom, and it was a creek drainage. Well, when I was on the one side, I had a perfect wind right in my face, and I had deer on the other side, I mean, snorting their brains out, you know, and I I thought it was a trespasser over there. You know, it wasn't supposed to be anybody over there. Anyway, so I I ended up later, you know, lighting a smoke bomb there, and in the same wind direction. This wind was right in my face, and it would go behind me and do a big U, go up over my head and go straight across the valley, and you know, and start running up the ridge on the other side, type of thing. You know, so. Uh, um, need a sip of water here anyway it would it would uh that's what the deer were, were snorting at even though the wind was indicative that i had it in my advantage it was it, you could i couldn't see what it was doing without using the smoke and detect that and so forth so again that's just you know another little trick that you can use and and study it and stuff you know a lot of this stuff relates back to Again, common sense or physics or whatever you want to call it, you know, that the, you know, gravity, like we were talking about gravity. Oh, there's another one. The, uh, like, creek bottom. When I go into an area, I just said, uh, like a flat valley between two ridges type of thing. And say I've never been in that area before. I'm just going in to scout it. The first thing I normally do is I'll go down and I'll, I'll walk to, because there's a ridge on both sides. Um, I'll walk the valley between them, which will have a drainage in it, and that drainage, you know, it might have water in it, it might not have water in it, but um, because there is a drainage there, the whole area could be big timber, but because there is a drainage there, you'll usually, because of sedimentation rates and more moisture, you'll see bigger, older, more mature oaks right along the edge of that drainage, whether it's water in it or not. Okay, this time, like right now, this time of year when the acorns are dropping, those big mature oaks are dropping and say the tree's right on the lip between the creek bottom and the shelf above the creek. Okay, half of the, the acorns will drop on the shelf, it's horizontal, and lay right there, and half of them will drop into the creek on the, the, the downward slope, gradually going down to the creek, all right? Then you get a, a, a heavy rain, a gully washer, will, you know, will get two inches of rain. The, the, the water will rip down that drainage, and two days later it's dry again, okay? But what it does, it removes a lot of the dead leaves and the, the, the twigs and stuff like that, and it's just there you got... That, that dry creek bed, either pebbles or sand, and it'll be a virtual smorgasbord. You know, the acorns will all be washed down. A little, they'll be in little pockets, or they'll be laying in. It's like a food trough type of thing. <laughs> so it, you think about the logistics of it. A deer will have a much easier time 
picking acorns up out of a dry creek bed, you know, where they're exposed and they don't have to scrounge for them versus having to scrounge around in six inches of dry cornflakes and find, oh, there's one, you right. know, that type of thing, you know. So, as I said, a lot of that stuff is nothing but common sense and thinking about what you're seeing and so forth. Um, so, so uh, real quick, sorry. Okay. Before you bounce to the, to the next topic, I want to jump in here. Dan, I know you, you had a couple things you wanted to try to clarify with, with Barry maybe. Yeah. Um, when you are when you approach a new property or let's say it's, it's, a, it's the first time you're going in to either hunt it or scout it, do you have uh, a terrain feature that you're kind of drawn to as maybe a favorite location to hunt out of? Yeah, like where do you start? Yeah, uh, well, again, I pretty much what I just said. In other words, a terrain feature, I'll go to the creek bottoms and I'll walk those creek bottoms looking, knowing that the, the deer are going to be traveling from the ridge on, say the creek runs uh, north-south, and uh, you got a ridge on the east side and a, and, a, and a ridge on the west side type of thing. Deer are going to be going back and forth from the east ridge to the, the west ridge, and et cetera. But if you walk in that dry creek area for, I don't know, you know, 500, 600 yards, you'll, depending on the density and where it is, et cetera, but you'll find areas where there's, because of the land, the terrain structure, there'll be certain spots that it's easier major crossings and stuff where the deer uh, will go across the creek there all right so i'll then i'll find those three or four spots all right mark them off then i'll go and i'll take each one of those and go up on the ridge on either side all right or both sides, I should say, you know, so that you're following up, et cetera. And then when you get up there, you normally, you'll find it's not perfectly at a 45, meaning, it, you know, it'll go up and it'll be a shelf, and then it'll go up again and it'll be another shelf, and erosion has caused that and so forth. And then you'll you'll also notice tributaries where you'll, you'll get little... There's no water in them. They're on the side of the hill, and there, or there probably won't be any water unless there's a spring there. But there'll, there'll be a little uh, dry wash going down to the creek bottom and stuff. You follow those dry washes at the top, and you'll get up there, I don't know, what, three-quarters of the way or whatever. And all of a sudden, there'll be what, what I refer to as a header, meaning deer that are going north and south parallel to the creek bottom will go at uh, where the, the, the tributary comes out of the, the side of the hill. It'll start washing, erosion will start washing it away. And But above it, just, you know, a little, a matter of a few yards, there'll be, a, a, it's not washed out as much. There'll be a flat spot where they can go around the head. That's why I call it a header, where they go around the head of that tributary and stuff. All right. Then you piece that together with the top of the ridge. As I said, when you're thinking of the predominant wind direction and so forth, you, you, you uh, compare that with how the deer are moving according to the land structure versus the, the, the uh, wind patterns and so forth. Uh, let me say this, too, before I forget this. This is really important. Um, you know, I, I keep, my, uh, as I said, I uh, 
try to keep records. I got, I go to uh, the 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 what the the computer is great for. I mean, in some reasons, it's terrible for other reasons, and so forth. <laughs> but at any rate, what I'm getting at is, you can go go to a, a weather uh, um, site that has not only your local predictions, but make sure they have the hourly predictions. All right. Now, if and I hunt, you know, uh, areas that I have stands in place. All right. If I go, if when I go into an area um, and basically just saturate that area, check it out. Everything you possibly okay. Say, say you've got it's a huge area, it's five hundred acres, and you got twenty stands in there. All right. I mean, or if you don't have the stand, I realize everybody doesn't have twenty stands, but uh, you might have the areas primed, prepped so that you can go in, and it might not be a stand there right now, but you can hang one in there quietly because it's all already trimmed out and the steps are there and everything, you know, or just, uh, you know, it's, it's ready for you. But anyway, my point is um, I list all my stands, either name them or number them or whatever, all right? Then every season I have my sheets, my lists, and I'll have eight, I'll have a morning list and an evening list and then i have eight different wind directions north south east west northeast southwest you know all the eight major wind directions for the morning and the other eight wind directions for the evening then i go through all my stands and i name my stands and i'll go to that stand and i'll i'll list i'll check off the the uh, uh, wind directions that that stand is huntable on. All right. Then I also circle the one that's the the premium, the optimum, you know, wind direction. Okay. So I'll go to that stand. Now I'll go to the, uh, go to the stand. Go to the computer in the morning, and I'll look at the computer, and it'll say, okay, well, you got a southwest wind, you know, uh, this morning, and at uh, one o'clock it's going to turn to the west. And at two o'clock, it's going to turn to the northwest, and by three, it's coming out of the north. So if you're sitting, you can plan your hunt and hunt your plan. So I go to my charts and I'll look down. Okay, for a southwest wind, here I got these these stands that are perfect for a southwest wind. All right, but then knowing that the southwest wind by two o'clock or whatever I said, it's going to switch to a to the north. Here's the 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 north the list of the north winds on the chart that I can hunt, you know, for the evening hunt and stuff. And then I will plan. I'll look at those whatever, you know, half dozen or whatever it may be potential good stands. And I'll say to myself, okay, let me think. Uh, um, I haven't I haven't sat this one for over a week. And you know, my name, you know, my buddy or my neighbor, you know, oh, he sat that one the day before yesterday. Okay. This one, we haven't sat this one for, you know, two weeks. I, I'll go there in the morning and in the afternoon. Oh yeah. There was a big buck. The, the, the mailman told me, so, you know, you know, whatever. And uh, I'm going to go to that one for t- this afternoon. That way you plan your hunt and hunt your plan so that you're not, you know, and I, as I said, you're, you're not just guessing 
um, yes, once in a while there. Let me say this too: when I lived in Montana, I lived west of the Continental Divide, and it was terrible. I mean, they, they, I mean, no offense to the guys out there, but they had a hard time because the half of the weather came out of the Pacific Northwest, and half of it came out of the down out of the Canadian Rockies, and you know, it would hit the Continental Divide, and it was it was all it was going all different directions. You couldn't depend on it. Whereas in the Midwest, they are excellent. I mean, it, it absolutely outstanding where you know they'll say oh the wind is gonna change at nine o'clock in the morning and sure as anything at 902 it it shifts you know and and you, uh, you know how'd they know that stuff you know but uh anyway like i say planning and stuff i, I got carried away again no no you're good i i'm, I'm trying to figure <laughs> out where i want to go from here though because because we've covered such a wide breadth of topics but i think Let's let's do this. Great. You mentioned you mentioned um, you know we covered everything from terrain to then wind to then how do we start you know where do you start your scouting process when you're looking at wind? Um, so we've talked kind of a lot about different stand sites. Really, what it came down to is how to look for those stand sites and the things to consider when you're in a stand site. But tell me this: um, how does all this, if at all, change from you know as you move through October? into November and then into the late season. Does this at all change or are there any specific other things that you're looking at as we move through the season? Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, same thing. I, I try to, I, uh, I, this is, I'm fanatical about this. So, I mean, I've got, I've got multiple stands where I hunt and some of them I won't, I got stands that I haven't, I haven't sat for three years and the reason I haven't sat them, it wasn't really right. They're only set up for certain specific reasoning. In other words, I got stands that are morning stands, stands that are afternoon stands, stands that, that are uh, observation stands, stands that when it, there's foliage on the trees, stands in late season when it's bare trees, you know, stands that are, that are uh, again, uh, we're, you know, there's any any kind of variation, you know, uh, movement patterns or when the acorns are out and then, they'll, you know, uh, or out when they're dropping versus not, et cetera. So I, I like to have many, many options. And guys laugh about, you know, how many stands I have out, but that's, it, that's why I do it. And uh, as I said earlier, um, one of the secrets is entrance exit. You know, if and I mentioned earlier, hunting undisturbed deer, um, and I'll I'll use this as another example. I don't know if you guys have ever hunted bear before, but if you've ever hunted bear over a bear bait, when you get multiple bear coming into a bear bait because of the dominance subordinate type of uh, you know they they'll they'll multiple bear will actually sneak in to the bait and they they use where they place their pads approaching the bait they'll have specific right foot left foot right they'll have pad marks you know where they'll place their pad in order to sneak in to the to the bait and not get into a you know a confrontation with a the, the bad boy you know but anyway my point is i do the same thing with my my uh, uh stand sites not all of them but for example if uh if I'm on a ridge, all right, that I'm near the top of the ridge, and then there's a valley across from me, and then another ridge on the other side, all right, and say you're looking south. So 
the the predominant wind direction, knowing that the wind is coming from the south, all right, I'll come in from the north. Okay, when I come in from the north, all right, I keep down over the crest of the hill, so I'm out of sight and out of mind and have the wind to my advantage. But in order to get into the stand, i got to come up over top of the crest of the hill, and any bucks or deer, for that matter, that are bedded, 150 yards away across the valley up on that other ridge and this is like an afternoon situation where it's already light out obviously but that you know in other words they're laying there with the south southwest wind at their backs looking my direction and if i have to walk 25 30 yards and six inches of cornflakes they're going to see hear me and then see me you know and they'll blow out of there and the tail's flagging and they'll com- totally disturb the area type of thing so i i go in normally i wait till after and i do it on a day or try to do it on days where it's poor hunting type of thing meaning it might be real windy or rainy or whatever but i and i I used to i started using a rake but i it's it's a lot better to use i use a hoe rather than a rake because the leaves don't get stuck in the teeth of the rake or in in the teeth of the hoe type of thing but i'll go in from over the crest and for that and i'll i only do it for uh, you know like 25, depending on where the stand is, 25 to 50 yards. I, I hardly ever do it more than maybe 50 yards, but I'll come over the crest and I'll rake bare spots right down to the earth so it's dirt, you know, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, you know, all the way into the ladder and then, you know, shinny up or climb up into the, the, to the stand and stuff. So that way you're putting your foot on dirt rather than in six inches of leaves. And I have absolutely done that, you know, multiple times where I'd do that, I'd climb into the stand, haul up my, my bow, and I'm sitting there 15 minutes later, and I'll see an ear flick, and I'll look over, and there's a big buck bedded there, you know, and there's absolutely no way I would have got in there, you know, without raking those spots out. In other words, the the secret entrance exit type of thing, you know. And in, as I said, there's little things like that that I cost. I just, I thought everybody did that, you know, but apparently not, you know. I mean, uh, I tell guys about it, and, you know, there's a, there's a big, you know, run on hose down at, <laughs> you know, an arch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, heard you, I've, I've heard you refer to this kind of level of attention to – you refer to it as detailing a stand site. It sounds like you you yeah. go through a number of you look at a number of small tweaks or small details when you're setting up a specific mm-hmm. spot. Could you could you explain mm-hmm. for us some of the other things that you think about or do when you're detailing a specific stand site? I'm going to do better than that eventually. Um, <laughs> I as I said, you know, I run these boot camps, you know, and I I I'm, I think I wasn't going to do any more. You know, but I think I'm going to do two this next year type of thing, which I, I close them down at 15 guys, so I'm only going to take a total of 30 guys. But my my point is that that's very advantageous, but um, I'm getting up, you know, in years, and they're physically demanding on, on me. So, and I'm, by the way, I, I don't even know if you guys know about this or not, but I, I'm just finishing up um, a... a tremendous video um that um 
not for, I mean, I'm supposedly the guy that shot the first two deer on production video with the, with a bow, you wow. know, which I probably was, you know, in the early 1980s, but you know, now there's tens of thousands of them out there. But anyway, my point is what a lot of guys don't know is I used to film my, my own personal hunts right since high school. I mean, and you know, class of 62 rules, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I've got, I've, I've got, I ha- wow. I had, over 700 hours of footage. <clears throat> now I lost. Now think about that. A 40-hour work week. You're talking <laughs> watching for four. You know, nine to five every day for four, five months or whatever it is. But anyway, my point is, I got it all edited down to eight hours, and now I'm editing them down. So I've got literally over 50 years of footage that I'm bringing out, and it's going to be like a a book form, you know, where I have, you know, different chapters and stuff. And there's going to be chapters on, you know, like passed up bucks and walk-ups and actual kills wow. and educational techniques and rear footage. And in fact, I got, I got footage and uh, guys are going to croak on this one, but it's, it's absolutely a world record, typical wild, typical whitetail. Um, and it, and again, it's, I've, I've showed the footage to a dozen official measures and everybody thinks he's I mean, you know it takes a heck of a buck to measure you know 200 inches typical well, this one everybody everybody agrees it's over 220 you know, so typical but anyway i got nostalgic footage from the 60s and 70s and then chapters on bear hunting and bow fishing and hogs and javelina and i you know, just one real short chapter on misses but uh like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyway, was... anyway i'm bringing that out right and it's like 90 percent done now and uh, it's going to be called the Crooked Hat Chronicles, which is because I wear the hat crooked all the time for many years. But anyway, my point is that um, in relation, everybody is hungry for the the hunting techniques and strategy and stuff like that. And uh, I decided uh, there's a lot of this stuff I need to put on film or need. To, and again, it's it's not as good as being there. But at least it will get guys thinking, and I'll go, you know, I'll go into an area, and just like you said, and how do you how do you detail it and so forth, and you know, I'll explain. All right, this is why I picked this area, and this tree might not look as good as this one, but this one is going to be a better. A strategic tree to use. I would rather have a decent tree in a great spot than a great tree in a decent spot type of thing. So I'll pick and I'll say, okay, this is the tree I've decided on, and this I'm a I'm a uh, uh, I prefer my shots. You know, I'm I'm a better shot at 15 yards and, and than I am at 25 yards. So uh, how I manipulate the surrounding area i'll go through and i'll i'll first i'll i'll use my pruners and then i use one of those like uh weed whacker things this looks like a golf club except it's got a serrated blade on it and i'll i'll clear the understory out there you know and then i'll rake it out and create a visual so that that you know the, the deer can see that's where and then i will drop trees at certain angles and i'm talking all obviously this is you know um 
I could get permission. This is some private property where you got. I mean, you just don't do all this stuff without getting permission or anything. But my point is, I'll drop trees at certain angles that will nudge a deer, and the canopy, the top of the tree, has to go at a certain angle so that the deer gets a visual as it's coming along the the trail, and it'll shift from 25 yards to 15 so your shot's going to be 15 yards away and then i'll uh you know film the the approach entrance exit and uh, detailing uh you know how to to add if there's not enough cover there i use i use artificial christmas trees um i use you know bring uh, again you can cut trees that are close to your stand and uh, hinge cut them and drop them to to close you in and so forth and again explain everything how i do it and why i do it so that you can you can enter the stand with the 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 most advantageous wind direction silently and then wait wait until the, the it's prime until that is like right now i'm i'm in maine um uh, and the reason i'm in maine it's the first time i've been back here for I don't know, in the fall foliage for 40 years or something. I can't even remember the last time. But uh, I had some medical tests I had to do and so forth, and, and which I, I had four tests. I passed them all without even studying. But anyway, <laughs> I, I had the... Uh, I had the tests and everything was cool, but I thought one, the main reason I decided was, you know, to come. It was I, I. It would be less tempting for me to, you know go into some of my areas and i'll try to keep out of my prime areas until everything is prime which is usually you know the third week in october and then about the 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 20th 25th of october um you'll have some you know cooler weather and maybe some frosts and again depending where you are in the country and so forth and and the deer will start to move better and then in other words uh, i'm of the the belief that if if you hunt an area for the entire month of October, um, uh, you know, which is tough for me not to because I love the hunting aspect of it, but I'll go someplace else and, you know, check out new areas or, you know, uh, keep my prime areas, you know, till everything is prime. And, and then, you know, uh, you'll, you'll see, because they're undisturbed, you'll see, uh, you know, a lot more, um, activity with mature you're dealing with you know older yeah. mature animals and um, they're not going to tolerate that uh, um, you know, disturbance time after time after time during during before things get prime and stuff yeah. I mean you'll you'll bump them out of there so you mentioned you're, you're, um, you're smart hunting yeah yeah you mentioned you mentioned that you're paying attention to the date, so the calendar, as far as when you're going to start moving into your better places. So you said later October you'll start going into it, which which sounds you know um, very similar to what to what we're doing as well. You mentioned you sometimes are looking for those cold fronts, um, but are there any other factors that trigger for you that hey there should be increased deer movement? I'm going to move into my good stuff. I mean, there's a lot of guys that talk about barometric pressure or the moon or different things along those yeah, lines. Right, Do you right. pay attention to any of that? I, uh... Yeah, um, and but it's it's to me, I, I I've always been a believer 
in you know in the moon, etc. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, it affects the tides and and you know crime rates, full moons. You know, uh, the cops you know are always complaining that that's you know that high crime rates. And so that there's there's obviously a science behind it. But my philosophy used to be that I didn't want to um, go by the the primo times. In other words, if you if if I went to bed at night and I look at the moon phases and charts and stuff for tomorrow, and I say, oh, it doesn't it doesn't get prime till nine thirty in the morning. Well, hell, I could just sleep in tomorrow. I think I'll just sleep in, you know, and get in the stand at eight thirty or whatever. <laughs> and no, 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 you know. I mean, again, I want to I want to be out there as much as I possibly can without disturbing the area and as long as everything is fine you know in other words if a big buck walks by he wasn't supposed to come by till the you know the prime time was 9 30 but it's you know it's it's 8 15 and there he is you know you know um you know but what i'm getting at is i use the philosophy is of of um you know hunting as much as put as in many hours as possible you know into the the prime situation but anyway um this last year i met uh, uh adam hayes uh who is uh you know a, a, a great guy um we became friends and and he is uh he makes sells or whatever those bases his entire uh, success on what he refers to as the red moon on the yeah, moon phase, yeah. and he—he's not. He, I don't know. You're probably familiar with it, but you can mm-hmm. Google up its uh, moon guide. But anyway, um, and it, the man has killed ten Boone and Crockett bucks, you know, with a bow, and, and that's his main, you know, mode of of hunting is within the the, the position of the moon, not necessarily not necessarily the moon phase, and. Uh, he, again, he's pretty much convinced me that there's, and I knew there was something going on there. But uh, as I said, it's I, I'm looking forward to trying that this year. I'm just going to keep um, whatever I want to say notes or keep records on on uh, you know what I'm seeing at the, the times I'm supposed to be seeing it and stuff like that. But as I said, I just don't want to become dependent on only hunting um, when. You know, it's supposed to be prime. I I hunt. In fact, it's pretty embarrassing how much I hunt. I mean, I, uh, um, <laughs> it's a good problem to have. In fact, the state of Iowa. I don't know. Um, did they ever send you guys that? that uh, it was a trappers association where you're supposed to list how many hours you're in a tree stand and how, how many bucks does fawns, you know, uh, coons and skunks <laughs> and possums, everything is saw, uh-huh. you know, and anyway, they, they sent that to me for, I don't know, five or six years and I kept, you know, great records on it and stuff. But at the end of the season, I would, I don't know if they, they might not have even believed me, but, uh, anyway, I, I average over 300 hours in a tree stand, wow. you know, I mean, just and that again, I don't gun hunt. Um, this is this this was just between October first and like December first, you know. So basically two months, you know. I I averaged over three hundred hours in a tree stand, and you know, in October and November. So that tells you something, you know. Yeah, that, you uh, must have uh, been a very helpful <laughs> citizen scientist for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, so I wanna, but anyway, yeah, go ahead. Anyway, Dan. go ahead. I want to change up 
the the flow of this just one second here. You've kind of hunted all over the place. Do you have a favorite state or favorite area of a state that you that you always, I guess, not necessarily go back to, but maybe go back to in your mind and say, hey, man, I really loved hunting there. Uh, yeah, but as I said earlier, everything's in the timing. Right now, I mean, I, I live in, you know, if, if where I want to be more than anywhere. I mean, I absolutely, I and mean, that's why I live there type of thing. But, uh, I mean, I could look back at the, the old days, and and it's not always just about the hunting. It's a lot of times it's the camaraderie and, the, you know, the camp or the, you know, the situation. or um, I mean, there's things like that that, uh, uh, like when I lived in Montana, I used to, in the late season, um, in Montana, with January, basically, I don't know, it's for years, I mean, I remember 10, 12 years in a row, I used to go to uh, Alabama. Or I mean, one, one year I hunted Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia. Um, I can't remember. It seemed like it was four or five of them. But anyway, my point is, when I'd go down in the south and hunt, there was the, the palmettas and, you know, I mean, Spanish moss. It was totally, yeah, there was whitetails. But it was totally different, you know, and Texas or, you know, uh, um, versus versus Montana versus the Midwest and stuff. Each one had something that was different. And I really enjoyed the diversity of the terrain and stuff like that. And, yeah, you're probably not going to shoot as big a buck in Alabama as you're going to shoot maybe in Montana. But in the same respect, it was you know it was a lot of fun, especially and if you you know if you had friends and you know two or three buddies would fly in and you know let's uh, you know let's go here for a week and 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 plus the peak of the rut and in the south a lot of the the uh, like in, in in Texas it's in December and Alabama it's, it was the the third week in January I mean you know I mean. They were running around crazy. I mean, the buck, the, you know, I mean, bucks, you know, chasing does and grunting and making scrapes. And I mean, it's a peak of the rut, and it's the third week in January type of thing, you know. But anyway, as I said, uh, um, as far as favorite places, there are a few places that used to be good but aren't anymore. Um, and there's other places that you know are still good. But they've changed. I mean, it blows me away how much. I'm 73 now, and, you know, I go back to places that I hunted when I was a kid. I mean, a teenager type of thing. And, it, I mean, uh, there's one place when we were uh, lived back in Vermont, we had a, a farm in upper New York State that we used to go to all the time. And I went back there a few years ago, and it, this was a cultivated alfalfa field where the farmer used to you know cut the alfalfa and would buck the bales and throw them up on the wagon and all this stuff and now that alfalfa field they let the, the farmer died and you know um they let it go back i mean it hasn't been cultivated alfalfa for i don't even know i mean 60 years you know and it's timber I mean, it's abs. What used to be a field is now timber, you know, type of thing. And as I said, it just it it's unbelievable. Uh, my biggest buck I killed in in 
Montana in 1976. And there used to be a logging road there. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. There used to be a logging road there, and I was actually jogging. I showed you how long ago. I don't jog that much anymore. <laughs> I was jogging. <laughs> I was running down this, this skid road, you know, and I ran right into the buck. And he was standing in a – it was a, a, a recently planted clear cut with little – you know, the, the the little softwoods that they'd planted were probably two, three feet tall, you know, and I saw them and I stopped and I backed right out and I went back and I eventually I killed them and stuff. But anyway, a couple of years ago, I went back there and we hear what happened. Well, two couple of things, the road that I was running in or on, they pulled, they put, they dropped, they brought a dozer in or something, put giant boulder i mean a boulder the size of a volkswagen set it in the middle of the road and then so nobody could get through there and then the trees that were two and three feet tall are now 50 60 feet tall and the road completely regenerated and you know saplings the road's not even there anymore you know so i went in i thought i was just going to go into the tree i killed that buck out of and you know and you know for sentimental or you know just uh for just to see it again type of thing and i couldn't even find it i mean it was you know i mean it had changed so drastically type of thing so as i said yeah there's a there's a lot of things that like that 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 you know you would like to go back but unfortunately you're going that that's why i tell guys you know they need to to um I used to keep logs, you know, I'd write everything down and, you know, like a diary type of thing. And they were great, but I, I did that for decades and I, I lost one in a flood and one in a fire. And anyway, what my point is, um, that nowadays with the, the technology, I mean, what I wouldn't love, you know, to have, Oh, I mean, I, I would love to have, uh, videos or, uh, you know, films or whatever of my dad, sitting down telling me stories or, or even better, okay, here's that bear I shot in New York in 1953, you know, or whatever oh, type yeah. of thing. So, again, for our families, for posterity, I mean, record some of this stuff. At the end of the season, you know, sit down and, and set up a camera, and, it yeah, it feels funny talking to yourself, but think about how much your family is going to appreciate and enjoy this. It's like this footage I'm putting together, you know, that uh, from it's over 50 years of, of footage and so forth, and a lot of it's poor quality compared to the great stuff that they make these days, but it it wasn't meant for production, but it's still neat to look, you know, I mean, I got, you know, um, footage of me when I had a full head of hair and weighed 138 <laughs> pounds, you know, and uh, <laughs> that's awesome. So, speaking anyway, it, it, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, speaking of kind of memory lane and, and looking back at some of those great memories, um, I've recently read a couple of your stories of, of special memories back in the last couple decades about your hunts for a specific buck. Um, I read a story about your hunt for a buck named Hur Hurley that you ended up killing. And I heard, yeah, a, I heard a story of, of your brother's hunt for a buck. I think both of you guys were hunting this buck named Woody. Woody. Um, so it right. sounds like you've, you've had some experience targeting these specific bucks. I was just curious if you could walk us through how you go about learning and hunting one specific deer. Cause that's, you know, selfishly, that's something I'm doing this year and I'm looking for any advice yeah. I can get to, uh, to have more success with that. Well, it, you know, and, and that is a situation 
that it, whatever you want to say, it's unique, meaning if you're hunting a specific buck in an area that there's a, a multitude of other guys hunting the same turf, you know, um, let's say it's, you know, national or state state land or, you know, open public public hunting and so forth. You don't know what, uh, you have no control over who's in there, et, et cetera, and if uh, he's being disturbed. So that, some of that is, is really tough type of thing. But when I uh, develop a relationship with a specific animal, um, uh, it's it's basically means more to me. I I uh, I normally you know will will pick an animal out and say okay this one's two and a half years old but he's got great potential and uh, I don't uh, I don't try to sh- I try not to shoot a deer unless he- and I, I get a kick out of the guys on television saying oh yeah he's fully mature he's or or he's he's mature he's three and a half you know well. I, he's not. I don't even consider four and a half fully mature. I don't think a deer is fully mature till he's five and a half. All right. So I'll pick, for example, a buck that lives behind my house, and I'll say, okay, that one is two and a half. You know, I remember last year I saw him, and he, you know, was a three by three or whatever. You know, at a year and a half. Okay, he's got some good. Okay, two and a half. He's, you know, he's a five by four or whatever. You know, and oh man, he's, you know, he's got some non-typical flavor there coming out. You know, and I'll watch him grow. You know, and as hard as it is, and and as I said, this new video I'm bringing out, I've got footage of me passing up Boone and Crockett bucks at 15 yards because I knew they were only four and a half, you know, and in the one instance, a poacher shot him. We found him dead with a small caliber bullet in his chest. And the other, the other instance, I never saw him again. I mean, he disappeared and I have no idea what happened to him. But my point is that then there's others, there's many like that that disappear, but there's others that you'll watch. And Hurley was one of those when I, when I first missed him, uh, I think. I mean, um, you're testing my memory here. I don't remember for sure. <laughs> he was six, six and a half or seven and a half. But I, I ended up shooting him um, when he was nine and a half. But um, the two years prior to when I killed him, when he was eight and seven and a half. Okay, same deal. I I lost control. Um, I I had a real bad wind and the the farmer told me he saw him he was you know bedded down with a doe and i was scared out in the middle of a field and and anyway and this big buck walked by the next day and i lost control and i shot you know i got him that not the one i wanted but another one and then the following year the same thing you know i was saving my tag you know for hurley and I had, it was a Boone and Crockett four by four, you know, walked up 14 yards broadside and stopped and looked the other way. And I lost control on that one too. And then I, after I filled my tag, I saw Hurley, what was it? Five times, I think it was, you know, um, and I didn't have a tag. So as I said, that just adds to the, the, the desire and so forth, but multiple years, I mean, 
from when he's, you know, five and a half, six and a half, seven and a half, eight and a half. You put all those pieces of the puzzle together and you're able to to decipher a pattern type of thing. And that's why I got so much satisfaction out of, you know, finally getting that bucket nine and a half. I I put all the pieces in it, it all of a sudden one day it hit me, I mean right between the eyes type of thing and, you know, absolutely that's what he's doing he's making a circuit coming up off of this ridge and crossing this fence right here at this low spot and he's walking on this little finger here and he goes down and he follows that finger down he crosses that creek bottom and he goes up on that hill and he lays up there with the south wind at his back and he makes it and when he gets up out of his bed he comes down on this creek goes out to the it's a big circuit in the food source you know from the bedding area to the, the feeding area and back to the bedding area and i put the stand in there and sure enough he did exactly what i knew he was going to do type of thing and that that's as i said that is what gives me so much satisfaction i do stuff sometimes and and i I even hesitate telling people because i think people tend to think i'm lying it's you know i mean but uh, i know i i I'm not, and you know, it's like that. The the book, you know, once upon a once upon a time that I wrote. Um, I mean, that's more like hunting stories. Mm-hmm. But that, I hesitated writing that book because guys wouldn't believe. I mean, hey, this stuff can't all happen to one guy. But hey, it's the truth, you know. <laughs> I mean, but I've been, you know, treed by grizz and charged by lions and fallen off of cliffs. And I mean, I got charged by two feral hogs twice. In the same day, I had to kill him in hand-to-hand combat. Jeez. You know, bust, you got a busted arm out of that deal. I had black bombers. I had hippo charge. I, you know, you know, stuff like that. You know, <laughs> it, it ain't normal, but you know, uh, but that's I guess just because of the saturation factor. But anyway, I, I there's this buck I called. I named him B9, and I, I've got the footage, and I, it's on the new video. You know, he he walked by. He stopped at I don't know ten yards, and. He had, I had his shed from the year before, and his G2, he was just a 4x4, four four, but his G2 was uh, uh, 13 and uh, 5 sixteenths, oh, and that wow. the year before his shed, uh, okay, and then the, the year I passed him up, his G2, it was probably 14 inches that year, and, but he had a, right between his front legs on his brisket, he had a tumor the size of a watermelon, and uh, as I said, he was... In fact, he, he was 10 yards when I was filming him, and then he, he ultimately walked right underneath of me and cut my track when I came in and, you know, busted out of there. But I passed him up because he had this tumor, and then a year later, almost to the day, I had him patterned good. Um, almost a, to the day, here he comes back, and I, I the same stand, and I filmed him. He, he came up to this little cedar tree. And he rubbed it on video for seven minutes straight. I mean, he just shredded this poor little tree. And then finally, and it was in pretty intense because finally he stepped out, you know, and I and I plugged him and, you know, and, and I got him and stuff, you know. But the tumor had on his chest what was the size of a watermelon was now, it was a scab, I don't know, probably four inches long and two inches wide. And I think what happened is the tumor got so big, he when he jumped across a barbed wire fence, he lanced the tumor and it just drained, you know, type of thing. And it came, you know, formed a scab there where it had been cut and healed and everything. Huh. But anyway, he was fine and so, so forth. But I, I, as I said, I passed him up one year and then, you know, 
kept that because of the tumor, and then the next year the tumor was gone, and I went ahead and and uh, shot him. I guess I, again, I hesitate telling people this stuff because nobody believed it. But I, and I but I, in fact, I, it's on the film. I mean, I, I walk up to him as I, you know, I, I film shooting him. I take the blood trail, walk up to him, find him and stuff, and then right in front of his face is a. Uh, I said, in fact, on camera, I said, "What we got going on here?" And laying in the leaves was one of those foil balloons, you know, that that you know says happy. I said, I said to my brother, if it said get well quick, I would have freaked out, you know. But it was a anyway, it was a happy birthday balloon, you know, one of those foil balloons, right? So I think it was the next day or two days later. One of my buddies in in, in uh, Michigan, he calls and he says, "Hey, you ain't gonna believe this." He says, "I got a deer the other day," and he says, uh, "I walked up to it," and he says, "Laying right next to it was this foil balloon, you know," and it said, "Congratulations or something," right? <laughs> and uh, two days later, Mike Mitten, you know, the guy that we made, uh, my buddy that we made Primal Dreams with, uh-huh. he shot a 160 something inch five by five in Illinois. And he says, hey, you ain't going to believe this. I walked up to it. Here is one of those yellow smiley faces laying there. We're thinking of letting loose a whole bunch more, you know, me to those foil balloons and let them float around for you guys type of thing. But three different guys, three different states, uh, all of us shoot deer and walk up to them, and there's a foil balloon laying next to them. So, you wow. know, I don't know. That's crazy. You can believe it or you can leave it alone. But, <laughs> so, <laughs> but I that's, promise. That's pretty wild. So, so yeah, here's here's yeah, really. my one final question on the topic of of hunting these specific bucks, and it's interesting. You kind of mentioned this with Hurley, how what I noticed is that a lot of the things we've talked about all throughout this conversation all came together for you to be able to kill that deer. So you talked about how you finally realized after watching him and observing him and collecting all these data points, learning this pattern, you learned how he used the terrain, and you put that information together with how you understand how terrain works and how the wind mm-hmm. and then you took those data points by being attention by being attentive to those micro details you then were able to put mm-hmm. your stand in the right location um mm-hmm. the final piece of that puzzle though i think or at least I, I imagine this happened while you were hunting him was balancing your pressure so knowing when to hunt him and or when to try to learn more so how to get the information whether it be moving trail cameras or when you're scouting or when you're actually hunting him how do you balance getting that information and or hunting with the fact that you don't want to go in there so much to spook that buck because when you're hunting only one deer if you spook that one deer your, your your hunt your season your goal is done so how do you balance that yeah a lot of times it's nothing but a gamble um I've said, you know, as I said, I try to set up the situation so that um, I can surprise him, you know, or ambush him, and he doesn't have a clue. And let me say this: that as far as like um, um, deer, deer. In other words, I, guys will say, and I, I'm of the opinion this is this is true. And I hardly ever ever do it. But if you hunt a stand on Monday, you know it'll be say it's good, and then Tuesday it's not. It, it, see, Monday's great, Tuesday's good, Wednesday's almost fair. All right, but it's going to get worse each time. But if you've got if it's the the prime stand, if depends on the time of the year. In other words, if you've got in early November, if you hunt a stand Monday and don't see the buck that you want, 
you could hunt that again as long as you didn't disturb the area and didn't disturb him and it's still you know optimum uh uh, conditions you can hunt that more that same stand two or even three days in a row because the deer you're after on Tuesday Monday he was two miles away you know on another ridge or another farm or whatever so he doesn't know that but if you, but if it's a, a smaller area and you're saturated and you're going to spook them and so forth but as i said it kind of depends on the situation and hurley was an example of that because i knew i i saw him go through there was a little hole in his fence and i thought but there, there was not a good tree there so i i went in and i put this stand up after the third time I, I saw him go through that, in that that area type of thing, so I knew it was in his pattern type of thing. All right, I went in and I put the stand up and I I set everything up and do it, it, same thing. It's hard to explain, but there was a, a, a an area where I dropped a tree. It was a big, it was a dead tree on the ground. I didn't actually cut it down, but it was a dead tree on the ground, and I drug it over and laid it at an angle to shift him over toward a little bit closer towards me type of thing and that first neck that that next day after i set it i needed a uh, southwest wind uh, a southwest wind that you know was predicted for that day and, and as i said don't hold me to the facts i can't remember for sure but if i remember right it was, it was like 34 degrees it was it was the last day of october and it was 34 degrees all right i snuck into that stand climbed it before light and I sat it all day and I can't remember it was in uh, seems like I saw 35 deer and seven of them were racked bucks all right but I did not see Hurley all right but the the conditions were absolutely prime and hardly anything knew I was there I didn't get busted you know they were running around because of the cold snap the 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 bucks were ready the does weren't they were just chasing all over the place it was absolutely fantastic day of hunting okay so then the next day was november 1st but that night that that cold front blew through and the november 1st all right i don't remember what it was like 60 50 60 degrees in the morning and i remember um, I shot Hurley at 8.37, if I remember right, and he was the first deer I saw. 8.37 the day before, I'd already seen 20 deer type of thing, you know. And but, uh, what, the front blew through, you know, but and it warmed up, and he came walking through. Uh, there was nowhere near the activity and so forth, and he came walking through all by himself, and he did exactly what I wanted him to do, and, you know, I made the shot. In fact, I, I really, I kind of messed <clears throat> messed up because I had the camera right there mounted next to me, and I saw him coming, and I hit, I hit record, and I saw the red light go on, so I knew I was filming, and when I took my thumb off the camera, I don't, apparently I double-punched it or something, but I shut the camera down instead of turning it on, and, and I didn't mm. get I didn't get the kill on film type of thing. But anyway, that, that day it ended up getting up to, uh, I think it was 81 that day. You know, So it went from, whatever I said, uh, 30, <coughs> 34 degrees one day to 81 the next. 
and uh, it was it was just a a matter of um, you know staying there because I knew it was right. In other words, there was no place I could go or wanted to go that was any better. And because he didn't show up on Monday, you know that instead of thinking maybe he'll show up Tuesday, you think you know he's more likely to show up on Tuesday because he didn't show up on Monday type of thing. You're you're getting closer to. I mean, he's going to come by sooner or later type of thing. So as long as you're not disturbing the area, go ahead and go for it and stuff. Hmm. Same thing. I think I ranged away from the answer. What was the answer? What was the question again? Well, no, I think I think you covered it there. It was it was just kind of okay. wondering about how you balance the pressure of you know getting yeah. after him and learning about him, but then also not over pressuring him and blowing him out of the area. Um, so yeah. I, I think you, you yeah. spoke to you right. spoke to a couple different elements there that uh, that makes sense. So yeah. So man, right. Barry, right. Cool. I, we have we've kept you for a very long time here. And what I've learned, I've learned a lot, but one thing I've definitely learned is that I probably need to sit down with you for weeks on end and talk to you because there's so much here to take in and so much to process. You are, you have just, uh, I don't mind it as long as it's, it's not season. You know, my, my biggest problem is the timing and stuff, you know? I mean, I, I, uh, um, I've always got stuff that I'm supposed to do or trying to do or need to do or whatever, type of thing you know and and as i said i um after i bring oh i i and i see i can't even remember if i if i said this but after this video comes out i'm making another one on technique strategy and techniques in other words how and I'll, i'll go into an area and film okay this is we need to stand here this is why this is how i'm going to do it and i've actually started it um you know i've got little pieces and stuff but in other words walk the viewer through how my thinking why i'm doing something a certain way and and you know how i do it and set it up and um you know set up the ambush and then get out and wait Till it's prime time and don't go in and disturb it and mess it up and do your scouting in the off season so that you can see the difference, you know, in other words, predicting um, how they're going to move when there's no foliage on the, you know, no understory and there is in, you know, in October and there's not in November, et cetera, yeah. type of thing, you know. So, it, again, I, I just, I want to share this stuff oh, yeah. so that, uh, the kids, the youth of you know, will get more uh, more fun. And plus, it's it number number one, uh, setting up the situation so it's close. You know, for a fifteen yard shot, you're gonna it's gonna help the the wounding rates. Meaning, you know, a guy, you know, I mean, I I have always have been under the impression that, and again, I don't gun hunt. I don't care what the next guy does, but I've been always under the impression that most bow hunters are better hunters than gun, white tail, you know, gun hunters, because in other words, just the range limitation of the equipment in their hands. Meaning if, if you're sitting on, you know, a stand with a rifle and a big buck steps out at 50 yards, if you got the gun within 10 seconds, it's over. Whereas if you're bow hunting because of the limited range on your weapon, you're at 50 yards, you might not even get shot. And, and because of that, you are learning, you're watching this, the social activity between the deer and, you know, how they're, 
they're chasing and and uh, you know oh they he went over and he rubbed that tree and made that scrape and now he's doing this and you learn and watch the 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 patterns and so forth so it's a it's part of uh, the 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 fun of it and stuff you know so i just told you know you you say to these kids you know i mean uh, um if they really really love it not only does it is it great bonding between father and son and you know brothers or whatever it may be but it it just means so much more to you know planet you know the strategy you know think about why you want to do certain things and then have it happen and get the animal rather than their buddy who just blasted the deer out of the window to pick up driving down the yeah. road type of thing yeah. you know so oh, anyway yeah. like i said i just i want to to hand some of the the uh, um, ideas and techniques down to the the younger guys and and hope to you know when i flip the ball to them they'll run with it yeah That's so for it. these uh these dvds which sound like they're gonna be really interesting and helpful when can people expect these to be out, and where can they go online to find more about the DVDs or your books or all the okay. different things that you and sure. your brother are producing? We have um, our Brothers of the Bow, uh, www.brothersofthebow.com, our website. And there's DVDs and books and so forth on there. Um, and uh, as I said, there's free reading and, you know, uh, all kinds of stuff. But my point is there's new stuff that are, is being produced. I've got the the one, and it's just coincidental on the timing, um, the editor that's editing mine right now, he emailed me last night, and he, he said, uh, I really would like to get this done in November, you know, so that you can have it for the holidays type of thing. So we're probably 90-some percent done on it. And basically, as of yesterday, we were designing the cover of the sleeve and the wording and the pictures. And, uh, um, in fact, I got a picture. He's got one picture of me kneeling behind a spike horn uh, that I shot in Vermont with the bow in 1964. Wow. And then another picture right next to it of me kneeling with another big buck, you know, that I literally shot 50 years later, you know, type of thing. I got a little bit better in my older <laughs> age. It, it was more than a spike horn. But yeah, it, but anyway, they're going to be available on our website. And then I'm going to, I'll probably, I'll put it on the uh, the various, you know, um, you know archery websites and pbs and trad gang and both both site and stuff like that i'll make the announcement that they're ready in fact i really don't know i've as i said i've got 700 hours you know edited down and i was originally trying to put it on two 90 minute discs so it'll be three hours long and now i don't i don't want to cut anything short so it, we might end up. I haven't asked them how much you know the the, the total time you know time adds up to, but I might end up having to put two one-hour discs in one sleeve and then another you know like volume one and another volume two with two one-hour. So it would be four hours 
rather than and it, it, as I said, there's all kinds of chapters on bear hunting and bow fishing and techniques and how I practice and you know I mean all kinds of stuff like that 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 uh, um, I'm sure everybody will will really enjoy. But uh, it, it's going to be a matter of uh, um, it's either going to be three hours or or you know with two discs and one sleeve or two different sleeves wow. volume one volume two so well, uh, but anyway I'll, I'll make the announcement and i you know i'm planning on you know putting some ads in the magazines and and then uh um you well, guys when, will uh, hopefully yeah so i was gonna say whenever it comes out we'll be sure to share it with the listeners and the audience and make sure that they know where to go because I, th- I think there'll be a lot of people that after hearing this conversation they're going to want they're going to want to be able to dig deeper into some of the things we touched on, and sure. it sounds like these DVDs are sure. perfect. So I'll make sure to have a lot links. of that stuff. I was going to say, I don't know about, uh, okay, would you say something about a link or something? Oh, I was just going to say, I'll make sure to have links to all of these things so okay. that people can go to our oh, website great. and it'll link back to yours. See, I'm, that's where I'm, I'm, I really am not good at. I mean, I am not, I'm a, what they call a low tech guy instead of a high tech mm-hmm. guy. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I, <laughs> Everybody laughs at me. I still use a flip phone. You know, I mean, uh, I just, uh, I, I don't, I've never sent a text in my life. I, you know, I, <laughs> I again, I, I've just, I'm a little bit, and I, I'm, it's, it's somewhat embarrassing. I'm kind of behind times, but, but anyway, my point is that, uh, um, I'll try to make it, you know, and, uh, you know, known and so forth, and we'll go from there. And as I said, if anybody wants to contact my, my email address, it's just, it's, Barry Wenzel at hotmail.com and you know uh, those those are probably the best ways to get a contact with me but uh, as I said if if anybody you know needs information just email me at Barry Wenzel at hotmail.com and, and I'll eventually get back to them and so forth but Terrific. Um, I won't be back to Iowa till Saturday so um, and then you know if I leave for a week it takes me two to catch up so um, I know Great. but this is oh, it, the time of year where a lot of I put a lot of stuff on the back burner because it's it's time. And stuff, it is. You know, so. It's that time to get in the tree. So I think on that note, on that note, I should let you go so that you can uh, get uh, whatever preparations done. Yeah, we we want to really thank you, Barry, for taking the time to do this and sharing so much insight. And in, in, when is this going to be? Uh, broadcast or are we doing it live? did you already do it <laughs> i don't even know right well it's is not it it's it's not live right now but the listeners right okay, now are, are hearing it right it. now but okay. yeah well um it'll be it'll be out in two days okay well give me send me an email and let me know when i can download it and listen to myself talk i will absolutely do that barry and, and thank you so much <laughs> okay. and uh good luck you this guys season. have a you guys have a, a safe season and and uh, hope you get the big one Thank you okay. so much. You too. And that's a wrap. This was uh, our longest episode, I'm pretty sure. So thank you for sticking along with us for the entire episode. Hope you found it interesting and helpful. I know there was a lot there. might be one of those episodes you need to go back to and listen again, maybe take notes, listen to certain sections, kind of break it up. Um, lots to take in, but good stuff. So Thanks for listening, and big thank you to our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, thank you all for listening. Thanks for being a supporter and a member of the Wired Hunt community. If you're getting out in the woods soon, I wish you luck. Shoot straight, be safe, and until next time, stay wired to hunt.
I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 